Well, somewhere between 27 and 33 AD, late in the springtime, thousands and thousands of pilgrims converged on the city of Jerusalem. Adherents of Judaism from all over the known world came from diverse cultures, speaking a variety of languages, and they came to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost is one of three major Jewish festivals throughout the year where people would actually travel from wherever they were living and come to Jerusalem together. The other two, of course, are the Passover and Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. Pentecost was originally a celebration of the harvest, which is kind of strange to happen in the spring, but in that climate, they planted in the fall. The rainy season watered the crops throughout the winter, and then they harvested in the late spring. On this particular Pentecost, the experience was about to be life-changing for at least 120 men, women, and children gathered together in an upper room in Jerusalem. There was the 11 of the 12 disciples, plus Mary, and dozens of other followers of Jesus gathered there for prayer, and they were waiting for something. They were waiting because right before Jesus ascended into heaven, he told them to wait. In Luke 24, he says, wait in Jerusalem because power is going to come upon you, whatever that's supposed to mean. And then in Acts 1, he tells them to wait and to pray because the Holy Spirit would come upon them in due time and they would be equipped for mission. Jesus said, you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the world. You've heard the story. I mean, representatives from the known world gathered in one spot for this Pentecost celebration, and the Holy Spirit fell upon this group of Jesus followers. Acts 2 tells us that the Spirit filled all the disciples of Jesus who were present there in that room. That means men and women and conceivably boys and girls because we know that families worship together. They didn't like lock themselves in the room and leave the kids to fend for themselves. So they're all there, and the Spirit falls upon this group of Jesus people. And the description of the coming of the Spirit kind of shows just how unexpected and outside of previous experience this was. Luke, the guy who wrote Acts, has a hard time describing the scene. It sounded like, how do I explain this, Uh, a violent rushing wind, he writes, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared as tongues of fire, like if I was going to describe, that's a weird description, tongues of fire resting on people's heads, whatever that looks like. I love kids' Bibles, because they usually illustrate it funky. But the Spirit just didn't come merely for dramatic effect to show off some wind powers and earthquake powers and fire on your head that doesn't burn up powers. The coming of the Spirit at Pentecost tells us at least four things that will come to bear on our text this evening out of 1 Corinthians. The first thing is that the age of the Spirit at Pentecost, all those years ago, the age of the Spirit has dawned. Prophets such as Joel and Isaiah and Ezekiel wrote of a time when the Spirit of God would come and dwell in and with the people of God. God is with us in the Spirit. A new age has dawned where God fills His people. Second, the coming of the Spirit is something that happens to us. That means the Spirit is God's Spirit, and it's God-given, and it's God-initiated. Faith in Jesus is the only thing that's necessary. And as we've seen in 1 Corinthians 12 last week, 
faith in itself. Just to have faith in Jesus is a gift of the Spirit. So it's not something that we earn or something that we work our way towards. It's something that we receive. The third thing is that the coming of the Spirit is something that happens to us. As in, it happens to us, the church. The Spirit is given by God to the church, to men and women and children, to Jews and Gentiles and Americans and Pakistanis and Ukrainians and Australians and you get the picture, lots of people. And the common denominator is not ethnicity or culture or gender or education. The common denominator is faith in Jesus. And the common entry into that faith is baptism into the church. The fourth thing we learn from this episode is that the coming of the Spirit is for a purpose. It's not just for show, it's for a purpose. And that purpose is laid out by Jesus in Acts chapter 1. It's to make his disciples into witnesses, witnesses to the life and the power of Jesus. And the way that the Spirit turned these 120 disciples hiding in an upper room praying together, the way that the Spirit turned them into witnesses in that moment was to allow them quite unexpectedly to speak in tongues. That is, to speak in other languages, the very languages representing the pilgrims who had gathered there for Pentecost from around the world. Now over the years, the Holy Spirit has become manifest in many different ways, from prophecy to healing to teaching to supernatural faith to speaking in angelic type of tongues. And all these manifestations of the Spirit gifts are for the purpose of building up the church to be a witness for Jesus into the world. So if the Spirit unifies the church and is for the purpose of making us witnesses to the life of Jesus to the rest of the world, you can see why the Apostle Paul would have taken issue with the Corinthian church. He had heard reports that the church was divided over personality issues, over moral issues, And in chapter 12, he addresses their division over what it means to be the church and the power of the Spirit. Where the Spirit is sent to unify and equip us to be witnesses, the Corinthians were treating some gifts and the people with those certain gifts as more important than other people with different gifts or lesser gifts in their opinion. So let's pick up Paul's argument where we left off last week. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 12 and going through verse 26. Would you stand with me, please? I'm going to read verse 11 to you just because it sums up last week pretty well. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as he wills. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? 
if the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on those we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this image of the body. Help us to understand what it means and what it means for us. So many years after the time your servant Paul wrote it, pray you would encourage us, that you would unify us, and help us to see where we fit in this body of Christ. Amen. There are lots, that's a technical term, of different metaphors for the church in the Bible. Um, Each metaphor is helpful in its own way, And each metaphor of the church in the Bible is incomplete in some way. Besides the body of of Christ, there's the church is known as the family of God, new creation, covenant people of God, temple of the Holy Spirit, stewards of creation, pilgrim people, bride of Christ, faithful witnesses, an army, living stones, students, children, And those are just a few of the roughly 80 metaphors for the church in just the New Testament. I mention this because Paul had lots of ways he could have described the church to make his point here in this passage, and yet he chooses body. That means, first, we should be careful not to see the body of Christ as the only way to view the church. And second, we should try and understand why Paul chooses this if he's got over 80 different metaphors to choose from. On the surface, the image of a body when trying to help people understand unity and a group of diverse parts being part of one thing, that makes a lot of sense. Like, we all have bodies. We get that, hey, my fingers are different than my toes, but they're part of my body, right? We get that. It's, it's an easy metaphor. It's an easy analogy. But there's also another reason for employing this body metaphor in this passage. And the reason is because it was a common metaphor for talking about organizations in the Greco-Roman world. In particular, it was the way that the Romans talked about their government, about the empire. They referred to it as the body politic. In the body politic, there were distinctive divisions between the classes. There were less desirable parts of the body, like slaves and poor freedmen. And there were parts of the body politic with great honor, like the high equestrian classes, which is the top 2%, or uh, like the ruling elite, which is the top 0.8, of the Roman Empire. And at the head of this body politic, of course, was the Caesar, 
One of the values of the Roman body politic was separation of the classes and then uniformity within those classes. So for example, slave classes might interact with the ruling class, of course, because they're cleaning their houses. And uh, even some of the philosophers were slave class when they would teach the students of these high class people. But they would never be invited to dinner or to a social engagement. So even though they might have crossed paths in their duties, the social strata were widely held apart. Within the classes, being uniform was expected. So it was a bad thing to stand out for being different from your peers. That's so countercultural. Um, my seven-year-old neighbor across the street, I think he's eight, uh, just came home with a new haircut and uh, blue hair. And that's awesome, and his blue hair looked great. And Emily, you have a nice do, too. I, I like your color right now. I, I mean, this is what we do. Like, it's, it's just normal. Like, I'm going to do something a little different with my hair today. I'm going to stand out a little bit, but not in that culture. In that culture, people in the same class dressed the same, looked the same, talked the same. Nobody wanted to stand out. To stand out was a bad thing. The unifying factor in the Roman world, despite its division over class and race and gender and religion, the unifying factor was the empire. And at the head of the empire, as I said already, is Caesar. Now Paul is drawing on this common body imagery and applying it to the church to show how radically different the church is from the body politic of the Roman empire. Here are some major contrasts. The Roman body politic incorporated much of the known world into its body by conquering people. Like, my army's going to go take your city-state, and then you'll be part of the body politic of Rome. Conquering people, exploiting their resources, and then enslaving them. Hey, you're part of the body. That's how we do things in Rome. Get with it. Okay? The church incorporated much of the known world through faith in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit little different philosophy on how to incorporate people into the body. The Roman body politic was united in allegiance to Caesar, okay? The body of Christ is united in the spirit through a common baptism. The Roman body politic, uh, distinctions of class and race and gender and social position keep people separated in status, and yet they're all expected to fall in line with social uniformativity. And the body of Christ Distinctions of class and race and gender and social position no longer determine a person's importance in the church. Now, we all know that sometimes that's not true, and shame on us. But in biblical Christianity, our race and our gender and our worldly social class should not have any bearing on our importance in the church. Paul is using this image of the body politic to describe the church and the power of the Spirit, knowing full well that as he talks about a body, he, is, he knows that the people hearing this are, are contrasting it with the Roman body. The church is an entirely new community. Jewish Christians are no longer known by their Jewish roots. Gentile Christians are no longer stigmatized for their pagan roots. All people who follow Jesus are part of an entirely new community, the body of Christ. The body of Christ is an alternative organization to the empires of the world. 
The body of Christ is an alternative, uh, uh, an alternative institution or organization to the empires of the world. Even our own empire. So, we have responsibility, civic duty, to do our homework and to vote and all of these kind of things, but we should not put too much weight in any of our candidates. In this election, that's a really a good thing because there's not, not a lot of great ones. And it, we shouldn't put too much weight in our candidates because they are not our savior, right? We have a social responsibility to be good citizens for where we're at, but let's not remember that we are a called out people, a new community, and our head is Jesus, Now, so far, we've looked at the body as a metaphor for a new community. To some degree, we can understand that analogy, but there's a few other cultural nuances that we should point out as well. Here's one. In ancient Near Eastern culture, as in many cultures today, different parts of the body are viewed as ceremonially unclean or downright offensive. Um, So, uh, you know, in India, you eat with your right hand, you do your business with your left hand. You never shake someone's hand with your left hand that's deeply offensive. Uh, in Bali, you don't show someone the bottom of your foot. That's basically like giving them the bird. That's a very offensive thing to do. Um, so here's an example. Uh, the foot in some cultures is not only seen as uh, unclean, but the actual word foot, and I maybe Des- I have heard about this in Arabic, that it actually can be used as a four-letter cuss word, the word foot. And so oftentimes, even medical professionals will apologize when they have to write the word foot or say the word foot, uh, so it doesn't get screwed up. Okay, so the foot can be uh, deeply offensive. And when Jesus washes the disciples' feet then, I mean, that's not only gross because people didn't have the same hygiene and they wore open-toed shoes, and it's not only humiliating because it was the work of servants, it was humiliating because the foot was a thing of ceremonial uncleanliness. Moses had to remove his shoes before coming into the presence of God in the burning bush. Coptic Christians to this day take off their shoes before they come into the sanctuary to worship. Kenneth Bailey notes that after the fall of Saddam Hussein, people who did not like him pulled his statue down in the public square and they took off their shoes and they beat the face of the statue with the shoes, which was deeply a uh, shameful thing to do is, de- you know, desecrating that statue. So it's no accident then that Paul contrasts the unclean body part with a highly esteemed body part in verse 15. If you've got your Bibles, you could take a look. He says, if the foot says, and this is verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 12, if the foot says, remember the foot is unclean and dirty and nasty, if the foot says, because I am not a hand, which is a great part of the body, you do all your important stuff with especially the right hand. Because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body. Just because you might think that in your cultural nuance, Paul says that doesn't mean you're not part of the body. Now this is quite a change in emphasis for Paul's letter to the Corinthians. So far, most of the problems he's been addressing involve the issue of pride and arrogance within the Corinthian church. But it makes perfect sense that if the prideful and arrogant were causing divisions, there must be people that they are ostracizing. If the prideful and arrogant are making all of this noise, there must have been people in the church who were on the receiving end of that, right? The people who were pushed down and oppressed. Well, now that's interesting. Maybe it was the less gifted. 
or the less influential or the lower social classes. Here Paul takes a moment to address those who may genuinely feel like they don't have an important role in the body of the church. He's writing to people who believe themselves to be less valuable, possibly less holy than other people. They might feel like feet amongst this body of glorious other people who do all of these great things in the church. Maybe you can relate to those types of people in some way. Maybe you, pe- see, maybe you see people up front talking all the time, the preacher or the worship team, and you think what you have to offer isn't nearly as important or nearly as valuable to the church. Or maybe you are gifted in preaching or leading worship or teaching a class or, or, or leadership, but you doubt yourself. You've told yourself that you're not as good you're not good enough to do it, or you've thought, you know what, they don't need me. Church has got all the positions filled. I mean, I'll just hang out. But Paul has a few things to say about that type of thinking, and he wants to raise up the church. So first, he has a gentle word. Every single follower of Jesus in his church and in this church is gifted with the Holy Spirit. And that means that you and I, we are all vital to the mission of Jesus. (laughs) That means you, just like me, vital to the mission of Jesus. Every one of us is given different gifts, different experiences, different calling, different opportunities to serve in the body of Christ. And again, Paul draws on this imagery. He says, if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it's not for this reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, I mean, think about it. If, the whole, if your whole body was an eyeball, you'd be like Mike Wazowski from, uh, you know, for, at least in Monster Zinc, he's got the hands and the legs. But if he was just an eyeball rolling around, it doesn't work out so well. So, I mean, the, obviously, I mean, the, the, Paul's point, he didn't even know about Monster Zinc, but, but he just knew it doesn't make any sense for us to all to want to be the same thing. I mean, if you're all, if you're all preachers or you're all worshiping, I mean, there's a lot of other things that just wouldn't get done. The body would not function correctly. Paul's point here is that we are all different on purpose, not by accident. In in the Roman mindset, uh, the the perfect Roman world, everyone would be like a stormtrooper. It doesn't matter all your differences. We want to whitewash you and put you in some boring-looking uniform, which is partly what I love about the new Star Wars movie. No spoiler alert. You should have seen it by now. If you're half a fan, you should have seen it by now. But anyway, in, 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 the, new, in the new Star Wars movie, you actually get to see two stormtroopers with, with their helmets off. Uh, one guy and one woman, and they actually have a life, like a backstory. They were once children, and, and they, some of them have ethical dilemmas with what they're actually doing as a stormtrooper. I mean, there's, there's people behind this stuff. We can't just pretend that there's no diversity in our communities or in our church. If Rome just wanted stormtroopers and everyone to be the same, the church and the power of the Spirit is completely different. Verse 18 tells us that God, God has placed members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. So if you've ever looked around the church, maybe this one, maybe another one you've been a part of, you're like, how on earth did this happen? Who put this group of people together? God did. He did it in the church around the world, and he does it at the local church level as well. And that means at least three things to us. First, God loves, loves 
diversity. There's some weird things out in nature. I was going to do this whole thing on symbiotic relationships because I thought that was cool, but I'm not. But now I'm talking about it, aren't I? But anyway, I found out there's this, there's this really cool crab that gets sea anemones onto its claws and puts them on its back and goes around and like stings people and like it's a defense thing. And, and the anemones actually get more nutrients because rather than just being on a rock and being static and trying to grab stuff, they go around with the crab. It's this mutually beneficial thing. That's pretty sick and creative. Who thought of that? So, I mean, and, and you just look at the diversity of nature and, and, and human beings, like, we're all so weird. We're all so different. Ah, I'm not going to keep talking. That would be weird. Even in, even in uh, uh, churches that are monochrome on the outside, right? Um, I've worshipped in churches that are well, we're pretty ethnically monochrome, give or take a few percentages. I've worshipped in all African-American churches before. I've worshipped in predominantly Asian churches before, uh, predominantly Hispanic churches before. But even in churches that appear monochrome on the outside, once you actually scratch the surface, don't actually scratch each other, but when you start talking to any one person, you realize like, oh, just because Eric and I are white dudes, around the same age, he's a little younger. Doesn't, I mean, we're like way different. Different stories, different families, different backgrounds, different skill sets. I mean, we're all, I mean, none of us are the same. And God did that on purpose. I mean, this is, he loves diversity. God intends that each church is built up of beautiful and necessary variation each church is built up of beautiful and necessary variation, okay? Diversity is on purpose. That's the first thing we learn from this. Second, God gives every local church what it needs to carry out its mission. That means that every church has enough money, enough volunteers, enough leaders, enough supporters, enough evangelists, enough teachers and prayers and faith and on and on and on and on and all the stuff you need. You may be saying, wait a minute, I know some churches that are hurting financially. Hey, we're in need of some volunteers. I know some churches that struggle to keep on mission and on and on and on. Which brings us to our third point. If God has placed the members, each of them in the body, just as he desired, that means we all have a job to do. We all have a contribution to the mission of the church of Christ. Paul begins by trying to lift up those who are feeling ashamed or less than adequate in the body. And he, starts by, he started by saying, you are important. You might feel like an unclean, dirty foot. I mean, that's in the passage, that's the metaphor he uses. But just because you feel that way doesn't mean you are that way. God puts you in this body. You are important. The implication is, if God puts you in the church, it's not for the purpose of just hanging out, warming a pew, or getting fed. It's for the purpose of participation in the mission of Christ. Now, hear me. I mean, this is general stuff. Yes, there are different circumstances in life that change the way we participate in the life of the church. Illness sometimes obviously prevents us from contributing in a way that we once did or would like to do. Family changes, births and deaths and illnesses uh, can change the way that we engage. 
our vocation, our calling by Jesus can demand more of our time uh, at certain times than others. Sometimes our work schedules interfere with what we can do. Yes, absolutely. But sometimes we can use the logic, you know, I really can't do much in this season. We can use that logic as an excuse. There may be different stages in life that truly prohibit us, truly prohibit us from full participation in the life of the church. And trust me, I know, I know. I know some of your stories. I know some of my own struggles. And we need to be really sensitive to each other on a case-by-case thing. But sermons aren't case-by-case, right? They're the truth of Scripture. So hear me with nuance. You, you know my heart. Uh, but we need, and we need to be the church for each other. We need to care for our own when people are laid low with sickness or overwhelmed with life, whether it's life happened to you or you said yes to way too many things and it's your own stinking fault, but we still have to have compassion until you can get through that season. Verse 26 says, if one member suffers, all of us suffer. And if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with that member. I mean, you know how this goes. When one of our people have loss, have illness, we suffer with them. We hurt for them. We pray for them. We serve them. And when we send awesome Lindsay off to Southeast Asia, we get to go with her. We're part of the ministry of Bethany Eiblings in, in Egypt right now. We, 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 as a church, we're represented by these folks, right? As a general rule, every church has everything it needs to be what Jesus is calling us to be. Jesus isn't calling Leonard Street's church to be Christ the King Church because Christ the King Church does that really well. And he's not calling Leonard Street's church to be Hillcrest Church because they do that really well. He's calling us to be us in this time, in this place, in this way. We have enough resources to do whatever we need to do that God's called us to. We just need to have some faith to invest them, to tithe in what we're called to do. And, and yes, some among us have the gift and the calling to give above and beyond, and some of you do. And all the resources in the world are God's resources. They're at his disposal, and we're just called to share them. In the church, we have all the leaders, teachers, musicians, missionaries, scholars, prophets, intercessors, nursery workers, sound techs, projectionists, ushers, healers, builders, designers, artists, strategists, mentors, disciples, small group leaders, worshipers, lots of stuff. We have all of those people that we need. We have every piece we need to be a thriving church in the power of the Spirit. How do I know? I'm looking at them right now. Looking at them right now. How do I know? Because God has pieced together every local church with what it needs to do what he's called it to do, including this one. What, if anything, if anything, is holding you back. Barring any true life seasons where our health or our mental health or the situation of someone in our care prohibits our participation, we usually have time to participate in the church. And sometimes we just need a reminder that we're needed because we feel like feet. That's one of the benefits of this mission trip to Panama. Um, we're looking at, at ministry with new eyes. We're exploring what we can do 
with new possibilities. You know, our children, I, I love the way that they're getting more and more involved, and you've seen them doing music and scripture reading and doing the sound booth st- or, uh, projection, uh, but our children are, are working together on this Panama trip. They're going to be putting on a VBS, not just going to a VBS, and um, they're going to be visiting the elderly right along with us and playing some games with the youth group, and they're involved in a, in a significant way in this ministry. And Patrick and Adelaide and Tim McAvoy are putting on a marriage class for two different churches uh, over the course of three days. Emily and Jim Morell are teaching first aid uh, to some school teachers there, uh, probably to two different schools. Wayne is leading the effort on building a sustainable garden in a low-income neighborhood where we'll be serving in Panama. And all of these projects and more are at the invitation of the Panamanian churches, and God is providing everything that they need, everything that they have asked for through his resources. And we get to be those resources. And we don't have to go to Panama to be useful, right? But sometimes when we change up our our scenery a little bit, it provides us opportunities. And we can see how we can be useful right in our own backyard. We need all the pieces. A holy diversity which includes you and me on mission together. No single person or small group of people is adequate in and of themselves. The Holy Spirit came on Pentecost and dwells in the church today, equipping you and equipping me to be on mission with Jesus. So may we be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit, filled with faith in Jesus, and filled with clarity of calling and equipped for service. Lord, let it be. Now, those cards in your bulletins, got a different, few different colors. I don't know which ones of you feel like feet, but I even feel like a foot sometimes in different areas of my life. Those cards are for you to write a note of encouragement uh, to someone else in this body. It can be a note of encouragement for something you see someone do uh, on Sunday, um, like, you know, someone who gets a little praise, like the people in the penalty box who, when it gets hot, it gets really hot up there. Thank you, Ryan and Josh, for being up there today. Yep. Uh, it could be a note of encouragement for someone who uh, often serves, like, cooking the meal for us or setting up the chairs and the candles and putting all that stuff away. It could be a note of encouragement for someone who maybe cares for one of your children, and you know when they've had a grumpy day and you're dropping them off and peeling them off your leg, and you walk up here, ah, I get to worship as a grown-up. That's someone's down there dealing with them, right? So maybe, maybe a note of encouragement just, just for somebody who you think could use it. Maybe it's something that you've noticed one of our pers- people in the body that do out in the community. It doesn't have to be stuff we do on Sunday. Um, so I encourage you maybe during the mealtime or even sometime this week if you want to take some time and write those and you can put them in the person's mailbox, um, however you want to deal with that. But a little encouragement goes a long way. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your spirit. I'm not even sure we can quantify all that you do, Holy Spirit. We know that you were there at creation, brooding over the chaos waters that you're the agent of creation. When the Lord spoke things into creation, you made it happen. 
And we know that you are the comforter, the counselor, the paraclete who Jesus sent to be his presence in each of us. We know that you convict the world of sin. We know that you convict us of sin. We know (laughs) that you remind us of our adoption as sons and daughters of the living God. That you teach us the words of Jesus. That you enable us to have faith. That you bear the fruit of the Spirit in us. That you, you change our character. And that you equip us with many manifestations of gifts to do the work of Jesus. Bless you, Holy Spirit. Help us as your church to be open to you. We know that you can't be tamed, that you blow when and where you will, but we thank you that you're good. Thank you that you are Christ in us. And we pray that you would help us cooperate with what you're doing. Amen.